Welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast, brought to you by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. We want to know what it really means to be a black sheep and work out how we can all get a bit better at going against the grain. We're going to be asking some of our favourite black sheep about the rules they've broken to get them where they are today. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our guests today are Hannah Graf. Hello, Hannah. Hello. And Jake. Hi, Jake. Hi. Hannah served as an officer in the British Army, serving with the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers until December of last year. Having deployed to Kenya, Canada and Afghanistan, Hannah came out as a transgender woman in 2013. She was the highest ranking transgender officer in the British Army and soon became the Army's transgender representative, where she had responsibility to advise senior Army commanders on transgender policy, whilst also working hard to support the Army's many transgender soldiers. She was recently awarded an MBE for her services to the LGBTQ plus community in the military. Wow. Jake is an international multi-award winning director, writer and actor. You'll recognise him from his roles in The Danish Girl and Colette, among others. Transitioning in 2008, Jake wanted to ensure that there were more positive representations of trans people on screen. He wrote, directed and starred in his first film, XY. And the award-winning film launched Jake onto the international film festival circuit and garnered much critical praise. He is quickly becoming known as one of the most prolific and visible trans male directors and actors internationally. If you haven't guessed yet, Hannah and Jake are married. The pair were listed as joint number 10 on this year's Guardian Pride Power List and have become an inspiration to the international transgender community. Thank you for having us. Oh, well done. That was a lot to get through. <laughs> I think I'm done. I'm, I'm, that was really nice. Thanks. You can go home now. <laughs> um, considering the title of this podcast, Black Sheep, um, I wanted to ask, do you both uh, think of yourselves as black, black sheep? I wouldn't say I necessarily think of myself as a black sheep, generally speaking, but I, do, I always have felt like other, you know, like there mm -hmm. was always in my life I felt like I was different from the majority of people around you. So that kind of shapes your thinking, I guess, as you grow up. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I was certainly always the black sheep of the family. I was, you know, always the weird kid at school. I was always the sort of difficult person in the family. And uh, I'm sure there was lots of mutterings about me behind closed doors. So, yeah, I probably would consider myself a black sheep. It makes me want to bar. Yeah. Since you've said, oh, this is the, on, the black sheep, I just want to go, meh. <laughs> I've just really wanted to, but no thank you. No one's done that before. <laughs> really? Very black sheep of you, yeah. Obviously. Um, groundbreaking. What, what do you think it means to be a black sheep? I think it means to find yourself... Possibly a little bit sort of ostracised, a little bit kind of breaking the norms, breaking the rules, um, you know, not conforming, I guess, is is the black sheep. And um, sadly, it does have neg negative connotations, which I don't think it should have, because it's a great thing to kind of stand up, be different, I think. Yeah, it's just about being yourself. It's about like not being kind of bound by society or any other kind of expectations of you and just like living yourself as who you are, you know, regardless of what other people think. Mm. With that, will you just kick us straight off with your first rule that you've broken? Well, the first rule that we kind of broke together, although not at the same time, was that uh, boys will be boys and girls will be girls, I think. Because obviously I was told from a very young age that I was a girl. And from that very young age, from about sort of two and a half, three years old, and when I could first speak, I would tell my mother and father repeatedly that I was a boy because I knew unwaveringly from that age that I was supposed to be a boy and that I was in a body that didn't feel like my own body. And um, when I looked in the mirror, I didn't see myself represented or you know reflected back to me. And uh, so, you know, for me, I've always felt like a boy. So I don't feel that we've, you know, I've sort of changed gender, but I feel like my, I've now aligned my body with my identity, my sort of inner me. Mm. I, go go on. on. Yeah, let's uh, let's bring Hannah into this and then I'll, I'll ask both of you. Yeah, I mean, my well, my story is, you know, similar to Jake's, as you'd expect, but it is different. Like I'm, you know, I how much I'm a little bit younger than Jake. And so well, I grew up in society when at least, you know, there were transgender people that, to be aware of, but the representations of them were so negative, mm. they were so bad, that it became very clear to me from a young age that even though I felt like I was, you know, female, in, you know, this inherent femininity within me, um, 
I needed to keep it, you know, locked away and not do anything about it. And so, it, again, like Jake, it wasn't until much later on in life where I eventually found the confidence to you know, come out and be myself. And when I did that, when we broke those rules, then, you know, life changed you know, immeasurably. And, you know, all the things I did before then, I was still very proud of those achievements. But for the first time in my life, I was being authentically me. And that, you know, that did a lot for my mental health. It made me more happy. Mm. It made my relationships better and it made me better at my job. So, yeah, it was all been very positive once I finally, finally broke that rule. You've already kind of touched on the wider lack of representation, but what about within your own families? How did you find approaching those conversations or, or did you feel you could even touch on them as as a child? I mean, you know, I grew up in, in 1980s London and the word transgender wasn't used back then. You know, it was transsexual at best and certainly never with any kind of positive associations. And, um, you know, even back then, obviously, it was it was under the, the great Maggie Thatcher's horrific Section 28. Mm. And so, you know, even gay and lesbian wasn't really a word that people would utter. And, you know, the media was portraying that section of the community so badly already. Trans wasn't even touched upon back then. You know, we were almost invisible. And so I just grew up feeling different feeling like there was something wrong with me feeling like there was I was the only boy in the world who wasn't in a in a boy's body mm. and that was really the only way I could kind of measure it you know I would tell my mum and dad Every single day that I was a boy, I would um, sign birthday cards and Christmas cards and Father's Day cards with different boys' names from that age, from sort of, you know, three or four years old. And I always dressed like a boy, whatever that means. Mm. Um, And so, you know, that's what I knew. All I knew from a very simple, very you know, the, the sort of the child's mind was that I was in a body that didn't feel like my own and that I knew that I should be playing with the other little boys, that I felt like a boy, that I wanted to dress and like act and be a boy because that's who I was. So for me, there was no outward influence. There was no trans agenda influencing me. It wasn't like a trend or a fad or anything that mm. I played into or any sort of external influence. It was just who I was innately. And how did you find ways to actually talk about it if you felt that there wasn't a conversation around you that even kind of touched on that form of vocabulary? I mean, I didn't until I, until I was about 26 years old, 27 years old. So, you know, I, in a very simplistic, childlike way, just said, I'm not a girl, over and over and over and over, and, you know, prayed to a god at night that I would wake up in a boy's body the next morning, which obviously never happened, mm. and things gradually got much, much harder as, you know, puberty kind of looms, and then it goes all, you know, really to hell. Um, and then I kind of withdrew completely and pretty much stopped talking to anyone for about a decade. Um, but when I finally, you know, at the age of, I said, 25, 26, it got to, to a point where I couldn't go on anymore. And, you know, I was engaging in some very destructive behaviour and alcoholism and so on and so forth, just in a, in a sort of desperate attempt to find numbness, just to get through every day the next day. And it got to a point where, you know, I'd literally hospitalised myself with, with acute pancreatitis such was the kind of drive to to find that oblivion, that numbness. And I realised that if I didn't do something about it, then I would not be here much longer and, and got back from a year in New York where I'd been able to be myself because in some ways the US is well ahead of the UK. It certainly was back then. Yeah. And uh, and um, I'd met other trans guys there. I'd met another trans man for the first time in my life at the age of 25 years old. And it was like a veil had lifted. And all of a sudden I realised I wasn't lesbian because I'd become a big part of the lesbian community just to sort of find a community and belong somewhere. Mm. And um, I met this trans guy for the first time and he was just this amazing guy who was supportive and and helpful and educated me and told me about hormones and surgeries and everything else. And when I came back after a year in New York, I said to my mum, look, you know, there's something you have to know. I'm not gay. I'm not anything else. I have always been a boy and you know that. And she was like, okay, just, you know, what are we going to do about this? And amazingly helped me with hormones and helped me with Mm. my surgeries and helped me get all of this without having to wait the sort of two year waiting list that you can on the NHS or a lot of people do on the NHS. And um, and that was pretty much the first conversation I ever really had about it with my family. Wow. Mm. Hannah, how did your, I mean, I'm assuming it was quite different. How how did you kind of recognise um, it within your own family? Yeah, I mean, like, when I was growing up, you know, I, like I said, I had a sense of femininity within me. I knew that was kind of innately who I was. But equally, I've always, you know, had traits about me which are kind of stereotypically masculine. So, you know, society's really good at saying these are male activities, these are female activities. And I was you know, sporty, I was active, I loved to be outside. And those are all kind of stereotypically male activities. And those, so, so therefore, my coping mechanism is just kind of throw myself into those things and saying, well, society's happy if I do this, so I'll do this. Um, but I kind of buried and 
kept all that kind of femininity, the, the stuff that you know, traditionally comes into that kind of female box, I left alone. Such as what? Well, you know, just kind of, again, it was, you know, I was a young kid, so, you know, those kind of wanting to, exp- you know, self-expression in terms of, you know, I was, I was obsessed with, you know, girls' clothes and mm. girls' makeup and stuff, you know, not that, you know, that defined femininity, but at the same time they were things that I wanted to explore because that's what, you know, you know, the young girls my age were all exploring. And so I kind of had to kind of shut that away, but I just kind of threw myself into everything else. And so because of that, I, you know, society and my family really kind of didn't really notice that I was going through this kind of internal struggle. They just thought I was this happy little boy. And obviously, as I got older, those feelings intensified. And, you know, I still knew innately that I, you know, that I wasn't, you know, the man everyone said I was, I should be. And yeah, I suddenly kind of realised that I was transgender. And then it took me another several years from there to really come out and be be myself. Because, cause, you know, I, unlike, you know, if you were maybe like a trans man like Jake, you know, uh, in a, for a society to see, a, you know, a young female, you know, wearing maybe shorter hair or kind of boyish clothes, mm. you know, you know, they're seen as a tomboy, but it's, you know, you can get through society like that. Um, I'm not saying it's the easiest thing in the world, but you can do it. Whereas for a, um, a young boy mm. to want to wear a dress or wear makeup, um, that is seen as really not on. I think it says something about the way, you know, we treat masculine and feminine things mm. in society, that masculine is like kind of above femininity. So to make the drop down is kind of somehow really negative. But for whatever reason, I just couldn't, I couldn't explore those things. I had to do everything behind a locked door. And I didn't really get the chance to to really do that kind of exploring until I went to university when for the first time I was living outside of my parents' house and I had my own room that I could lock and no one else could get into it and stuff like that. So I could kind of explore it slightly, but yeah. Did you ever let anyone in to that metaphorical room? Um, not until I was like in my early 20s. Actually, that's not true. Actually, I told um, one, of my, one of my closest friends at primary, uh, high school when I was probably a bit about, uh, it would have been like 14, that I, you know... I thought I, you know, I'd quite like to be a girl, mm. um, but then I left shortly afterwards to, you know, to go to a different college, and so I kind of, you know, I never followed up on it. And the moment I said it, I was kind of ashamed of it and kind of stopped it and and kind of ran away. And she never really pushed it. So I did tell someone once, but it never came anything of it. And then it was say it wasn't until my early twenties when I decided to tell someone properly for the first time. And was that when you were in the army? Yes, yeah, I was in the army by then. So I guess first question is, what led you to join the army? Um. I don't know. This one, this question always gets me right because there's there's two sides to the coin. Mm. So the first one is is that um, I was in army cadets as a kid and I liked it. You know, I enjoyed the outdoors. I enjoyed the excitement of it. I enjoyed the the people around it. You know, kind of being outside and you know doing, I know shooting or activities or whatever. I really liked that stuff. So you know that kind of drew me to it for the first in the first instance. But the second one is that you know there's this kind of school of thought that trans women um, kind of gravitate towards stereotypically masculine jobs because we're trying to prove unconsciously to society and to ourselves that we're the men that everyone says that we are mm. um so i genuinely don't know which one was at play it's probably a bit of both yeah but for whatever reason you know uh, prospectus landed on my you know in my lap for a army college and i thought yeah it sounds like fun let's do it and you know it just kind of snowballed from there I was going to ask you the kind of chronology of that, but I wonder actually whether we jump straight into rule two, because I know that your rule will kind of take us on in terms of that your transition within the army. <laughs> so, Jake, back to you. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the second rule that you have broken? So the second rule that I've broken is if I came out as a trans actor, then I would never act again. That's what I was told when I left um, drama school. And, you know, this was a time, it was before the transgender tipping point. So it was before Laverne Cox had been the first transgender, not only person, but also transgender woman of colour. Amazing. On the cover of Time magazine. It was before Caitlyn Jenner had come out on Vanity Fair bearing her boobs. Mm. It was before all of those, you know, before there was a big trans visibility, before the media had latched onto it. And I think my drama coaches genuinely were concerned for me that I would come out and, you know, be like, yeah, I'm a trans guy. And people would lock those doors and pigeonhole me and all of those metaphors and mm. that would be that um, and I don't think it came from a place of malice I, I think they genuinely meant to help me on my way but obviously you know I'd come out as I say I came out as a lesbian when I was 19 and I'd lived without 
major issues of sort of being discovered because I was sort of presented as quite butch. And so, you know, people knew I was queer and I'd sort of ridden that wave because I said I needed to belong somewhere. And even though I knew I wasn't a, a gay woman because obviously I wasn't a woman, that to, to then sort of go back into the closet once I'd gone through a transition yeah. really felt weird. And then I did spend a lot of time as you know, walking into auditions, thinking, do they know? Can they tell? Are they reading me as trans? And obviously, that's even more exhausting because you know you're trying to like give a good performance whilst also wondering if all the people in the room are sitting and thinking, is that a girl or a boy? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is obviously quite worrying and quite. Had you transitioned pre-drama school? Yeah, so I transitioned. I was kind of a year into my transition when I went to drama school. And, and how was that? It, what, going to drama school? <laughs> well, no, I know about that. But, yeah, you can talk about that. But I also mean, like, transitioning whilst also in such an intense environment, meaning your drama school training. I mean, to be honest, transition is... Medical transition is always going to be intense because... The physical changes that you're undergoing are obviously immense. You know, you're waiting to, to, you're sort of looking at your chin on a daily basis to find the first whisker. You know, your voice is dropping. You're you're so obsessed. You become so obsessed with your physical changes. Yeah. Um, and then you've obviously got that bit where you kind of look neither or. You know, you've still got a, a, a chest and you're walking over hunched and you've got a little bit of a beard. And, you know, I looked a bit Amish for a while there. It wasn't a great look. Um, you know, literally only my beard came in and mm. for ages like, where's my moustache? Yeah. It wasn't one. Um, but um, I rocked that. That look I and uh, so you know the whole thing is quite a difficult time in your life and society starts treating you very differently and you start realizing that men and women are treated very differently within society so the whole mm. thing added to that you're in drama class and you're sort of standing up in front of a class of people acting winter summer you know? yeah <laughs> yeah no totally Qu quite early on in my transition when I was still super awkward I'd had you know my, my formative years and the sort of 10 years on top of that, 15 years on top of that, of feeling desperately um, self-loathing, no self-esteem, mm. unsure of myself, not even unsure of myself, completely riddled with self-doubt because everything I knew myself to be, I had been told my entire life that I wasn't. And so you do, during those formative years in particular, it takes such a toll on your self-esteem and your self-confidence. Mm. And so I had none. You know, my audition was just horrific but luckily one of my friends actually taught at the school and she said look you know give him a chance and that's really the only reason I got in because you know it was it was car crash audition and uh, it really helped me kind of build my confidence and you know obviously you're learning a lot about your physicality and you know I was watching all the other boys do their thing and you do have to kind of relearn everything because I'd spent so many years trying to squash down mm boy Jake or boy whoever I was you know I didn't have a name at that point but I had to kind of like squash down that boy that I was because that was not what my parents wanted to see it was not what society wanted to see it was not what my school wanted to see you know at the age of sort of 16 17 I grew my hair long and tried to be a girl mm. and obviously that that didn't go very well either so you know I was kind of unlearning all of that and in a way it was a really good way to do it because you know by the end of the the two years I'd been everything from a tree to a koala yeah. to a you know refugee in Russia and you know I'd really kind of you know run the gamut of uh, of characters and emotions koala was good for me as well it's very still um, <laughs> I was a condor just so you know well Koala sleep. Well, you see, this is it because koalas sleep for eighteen hours a day. Yeah. So because I'm always quite, you know, like that, mm. quite, quite, quite Good <laughs> high energy. Yeah, I was going to say because I'm quite high energy. He, they, he like moved his hands around. I did. Really I waggled my hands. Um, they felt the koala was good for me, so there was a lot of still. Mm. Um, Can I you try what, being koala a little bit more often? I wonder why you were a condor. Um, because my presence is so small as a normal person. No, I don't know. I was going to say, really? <laughs> Obviously it worked. It flipped, yeah, I, really, I actually every morning just pretend to be a condor before I leave. But this isn't about me. Um, I I'm, guess I'm really interested in the kind of... Um, for me, drama school felt incredibly vulnerable. You had to be, mm. like, rip yourself open. Yep. So that matched with what you were going through. Were you able to um, be honest and open with other people or did that feel too difficult at that time? I actually didn't come out to most of my class for a good kind of 18 months of the two years and when finally I did come out to one of my friends she was like yeah I, I kind of googled you like on, on like day one you know I googled all of you and you came up because of your, the films that you'd made previously in right. XY and so on so she very respectfully she was a girl called Leanne had sort of very respectfully allowed me to come out and tell her which a lot of people did actually over the last 10 years because obviously with trans guys you usually can never tell yeah. um, 
that they're trans. You know, with trans women, it's different. It's different, which is why trans women historically have kind of been at the front of all our battles because mm-hmm. of their physicality, because they tend to be taller or slightly larger or have a, have an Adam's apple or a deeper voice. Or but whereas whereas that's you know this is why trans women have kind of really fought the good fight for us. Trans guys, I mean, if you see me, we are sort of afforded the luxury of kind of going, as they say, stealth and living that kind of under the radar life. So I very often just kind of kept it to myself. And then like after six months or a year, people would go, well, you know, I always knew. Mm. And, And that's quite nice in a way, because obviously much as I've been kind of squashing it all down, trying to be as manly as possible. And, you know, there is a point where you go uber masculine. I think Hannah will attest that, you know, when trans women transition at the beginning they go uber feminine Mm. it's like high heels long nails you know weaves and all that and obviously I went the other way I sort of you know I'd walk around like a (laughs) like a little thug and be like yeah right yeah it was um you know I think it's something that we do we really kind of over hype so that we can find our place and then obviously when you grow confident in your own gender which finally I did for the first time in my life at like 27 28 years old then obviously you can calm it down and just sort of be and now I do a lot of this like waving of the hands and um, I'm okay with that yeah isn't it interesting you were saying before kind of trying to cling on to an identity whether that be within the gay community or but also it sounds like within transitioning you almost want to cling on to our stereotypical ideas of of that said gender so you're you know clinging on to the stereotypical masculine mm. ideals and then having the time or space or confidence to be able to kind of move around that spectrum yeah well, I, one of the most marked environments weirdly post-transition and pre-transition is is a public toilet or is a toilet Mm. so you know i remember when i when i used to be a girl girls congregating that you know i've never been a big dancer so nightclubs when you go out or in bars for the evening and it was all a bit loud you know you'd go into the loo and i'd spend hours in there just chatting usually to girls that i fancied Mm. but you know you're there and you're chatting and all the girls putting their makeup on and you can literally sit for an evening and just kind of talk and yap in the toilets and it was great fun whereas the men's toilets it is a completely different thing you walk in head down you you don't look anywhere you do your thing and then you get out and it's it's like the gym as well the gym changing room is very do not let your eyes rove keep it down keep it yourself you know very you, you don't even look if you smile at anyone else then you get a really weird look back so you kind of grunt at best and you know a little nod and it's it's really very telling in those two sort of How intimate spaces that the kind of difference between the genders from toilets back to your broken rule and um, what made you change and kind of embrace being the trans actor um rather than listening to what your teacher said at drama school i had found it almost exhausting for for i think probably about a year or two to walk into these rooms and audition and <clears throat> excuse me to walk into these rooms and audition and not be myself and not out myself and I realised that I couldn't keep on doing that, no matter what happened. My films were doing well. I'd already made a second film, Brace, which was about two gay trans guys. And that had kind of stormed the festival circuits. And, you know, I'd go to all these film festivals and, and people would come up to me and say, yeah, you know, really love the film, but you should have given that role to a trans actor. And I'd be like, wow, I'm really obviously doing a very good job here. But at the same time, I realised it was to the detriment now of the films I was making, the work I was doing. And it looked like I was this cisgender man who was writing all these trans stories, which the whole thing must have looked weird from an outward perspective. Mm. And so I, in interviews and so on and and auditions, just started, you know, dropping it in there. Just like, you know, you drop in that you're Jewish or whatever, you Mm. know, you drop in that you're trans. And people sometimes don't pick up on it. And obviously if they do, then, you know, there's that kind of moment of, and they'll Mm. double take. And then usually you just kind of push on. And the more I did that, the more relaxed I felt because I wasn't kind of hiding this massive part of myself. And obviously then, you know, there was this big trans tipping point. And um, I've been quite lucky because there aren't that many visible trans guys in the UK media. So I got a lot of attention for the films and for the work I was doing, for the interviews I was giving, for the talks I was giving. Um, And through that, I have, as I say, you know, for Hannah and I, that's really, really worked well Mm -hmm. for us, Um, separately and together, just being visible. I think, you know, living your kind of, without sounding sort of, you know, wanky, that kind of authentic self, Mm -hmm. you know, being yourself, I think is the only way really to kind of get through this life um, and I can't imagine a more exhausting thing to do than to spend the rest of your life kind of lying and living that kind of half-life. And I understand for some people it's the only way they can get through life and get through day-to-day, safety-wise and otherwise. But for me, it just, you know, 
I, I haven't looked back. Yeah, I can't imagine how exhausting it must be to suppress that, considering you're having to kind of mask yourself to then embrace another role that you're reading for. You're almost doing like two roles at the same time. Yeah. Um, did it change your acting career as a consequence? I mean, amazingly, you know, I've had roles in The Danish Girl, I've had roles in ITV's Butterfly, I've had roles more recently in Colette with um, mm. Kira Knightley, which was the, just the, the most amazing, because, you know, I'm half French, so I grew up reading Colette at school, and then, you know, I got this this message from the director, Wash Westmoreland, who directed Still Alice, and he he's the sweetest and most lovely in the world, down-to-earth guy, and so I just got a message on Facebook saying, you know, I've, I've been following you and I'd love to cast you in my new film, are you up for an audition? And then the casting agent casting director got in touch and I went in for this audition with this really sweet nice unassuming guy um, did the audition hadn't researched this guy at all Wash Westmoreland did the audition <laughs> again he was like great perfect take love it and then I said you know afterwards when you're sort of chilling out you know would I have seen anything you've done <laughs> he was like yeah I did Still Alice with Julianne Moore don't know if you've heard of it and I had actually watched it two weeks before so I felt like a right idiot <laughs> but um, but you know we became very good friends and being on set with Kira Knightley and Dominic West in Budapest and wow. 500 Hungarian, Bulgarian, Hungarian, Hungarian, Hungarian extras. Well, some of them were Bulgarian. Um, was amazing. It was just you know the stuff of dreams. Yeah. And that whenever I'm auditioning now for anything, I think as I'm getting a bit nervous before, I think I've read Kira Knightley's palm. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, were you two together at this point? We were. Great. We've been together for four years. Feels like ten, but it's only been four. <laughs> Enough of you, Jake. Uh, Hannah. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Um, no, you can. Please feel free to join the conversation. Hannah, will you tell me um, the rule that you have broken, please? Uh, the rule that I broke is that you have to conform to succeed. And um, what do you mean by that? Um, I guess it's kind of similar to Jake's one, right? But it's just you know more tailored to my experience of being in the British Army. So I've been in the Army for, um, I don't know, about three years when I started to come to the conclusion that I needed to, to come out as transgender. And I started to put the feelers out with a couple of my friends, some who were in the Army, some who weren't in the Army, that I kind of started to be a bit more open about my kind of identity with. And all loving, all careful all caring and all wanting the best for me just kind of said you know are you sure you want to do this you know is this you know is the army the right place to come out and be trans because I can't imagine they'd be very supportive and you could lose everything you'd worked for and at that point I was you know I'd done very well in my career and I was um you know, done well against my peers I'd you know, had really good positions really good reports etc and I was building a career for myself and everyone just said be careful not to lose your career for this mm. and I did come out and it wasn't you know, the smoothest of rides, but at the same time, my career actually just kind of got even better from it because, you know, for one thing, I was better at my job. You know, I was being more authentic myself because when you're not being yourself, it takes genuine, like, physical mm -hmm. effort to to put on a persona that's not you. So every time someone asks you a question, you have to think, what would the man say what would you know what would a man do in this situation rather than just being just doing what you would do and that takes that kind of physical energy and mm. so for one thing you've got more time to put in you know to, more emotional energy to put into the, your actual job and your relationships the second thing was that through my transition I started to I developed more empathy I started to understand a little bit better what it meant to be different and and for people to see you as different. And my soldiers started to confide in me in ways that they never thought, you know, I never thought they would have done previously. And so I, I became better at my job. And also I, I did develop a bit of a chip on my shoulder and saying, well, if I am going to come out, I need to be as good as I can be because I can't, I've got nowhere to hide and there will be, will be people out there maybe who are gunning to, to drag me down. And so I just made sure I was like worked harder and longer mm. and you know, I my career went from strength to strength. You know, at the end of it, you know, something I'm obviously very proud of is getting you know my MBE for the, my work in the military. So I, there's no way I would have had an MBE had I just gone through my life just being the same officer that everyone else kind of was around me. So yeah, I, for me, breaking that rule and just going, do you know what? I know that people say that I've the best thing to do is just to be what people expect you to be because that's the way you'll get further in life. I just think that that's true. I think you be yourself and that'll get you the furthest in life. Mm. Did you did you know anyone else that had transitioned within the army before you? Um, so I, you know, I, I did a little bit of research. There were other people that had transitioned um, in the army s quite a few years before me. 
and they'd have they'd had pretty negative experiences. Um, when I started, one of the first people I started to talk to was the um, the, the medical officer, so essentially you know the GP of, of the of the army base, and I happened to have one who was. Um, a civilian who was kind of contracted to work in the army. So I felt a little bit safer talking to him. Mm. And I had this very like off the record conversation saying that if I wanted to do this, what would be the process and how, you know, what could I do? And that was limited without, without going on to kind of medical record. But he did introduce me to a, to a girl who is now, now one of my, you know, good friends is a lady called Ida Holden, who was a RAF officer Mm. who'd come out a few years previously. And so she kind of, help mentor me and guide me through those initial steps of coming out. And she gave me some absolutely <laughs> corking advice on how to kind of deal with, you know, the military um, specifically to pertain to a transgender woman. So, yeah. And what was some of that advice? Um, she told me that when you transition, it's not, you may, it'll feel like it's all about you, but in reality, it's a lot wider than that. Mm. So as you transition, the you know, your society and the people around you transition with you. So your family will... Um, We'll have to go on a journey to understand what it means to have a daughter instead of a son. Um, but from a military perspective, which is that you know you're going to have all these people who either work for you or um, you work for, and they're all going to have to kind of recock their brains, and they're going to have to they're going to take time to to kind of get used to that changes because you know you don't change overnight. Mm. Um, and so people called me sir a lot still, and even though I was technically called mom then, and you know she told me just to to relax about the whole thing and say you know don't take those things to heart because a lot, I think there's a lot of transgender people out there who understandably so will react quite negatively to someone getting something like your pronoun wrong mm. and if someone does that with the intent to you know cause offense then that's you know you should take offense but I've always said that if someone doesn't mean to cause offense then I won't take any so sometimes people just get it wrong my mum still gets it wrong and I love her dearly my mum still gets it yeah. wrong too <laughs> um, you know because old habits die hard right but you yeah. know so when people you know accidentally called me sir I had two options I could either go how dare you I'm mom don't you dare do that again and all of a sudden barriers are brought up they're afraid yeah. to talk to me mm. and like I'm not as good at my job or you can say don't worry about it these things happen and they go, okay, I know that she's not going to fire off the wall if I get something wrong. I'm happy to talk to you. And, you know, that just, you know, that's a, a macro version of, you know, what I experienced in the army. But I think it's true across all of society when dealing with transgender people, which is the more open we can be about ourselves and less kind of, you know, quick to take offence, the easier we'll communicate to others and educate them and hopefully change their minds about what it means to be transgender in general. Because the last thing we want is people walking on eggshells. Mm. And afraid to ask us questions mm. because then obviously no one ever learns. Absolutely. Um, just because you, as you said, you were kind of doing your research alone. What was, and if only if you're up for talking about it, the kind of turning point where you were like, I cannot do this anymore. I need to come out. So for me, that was um, Afghanistan. So just prior to coming out, I'd done a tour of Afghanistan. And up until that point, so I think I mentioned earlier, so when I was at university, I had a locked door for the yeah. first time and, you know, I had the access to the internet. So I would, you know, order clothes online, makeup online, and then I would make, dress up and, you know, do makeup to the to a position where I thought, you know, I felt a little bit more like myself. And mm. then I'd go online, adopt like a female avatar and maybe like, you know, chat on chat rooms or whatever. And, you know, kind of had that, that became my coping mechanism to, exp- you know, to indulge my femininity, but to do it in private behind a locked door. And that continued when I was in the army because you still have, a, you know, your own space, your own room that you can lock, etc. Um, but when you're in Afghanistan, you don't have any of that. Yeah. You know, you live in a, um, a tent with, you know, I think I had oh, it seven or nine other guys that were in the room and you literally have your bed space, um, which is like a camp cot. And then a place for your bag, and that was it. You know, little, you know, those kind of shoe things you get from um, IKEA. <laughs> yeah. You got one of those down, and that's your shelves, and that's it. And that's all the space you've got. And also, you know, in Afghanistan, it's kind of there can be real high intense moments, but large t- parts of your time away are kind of very quiet by yourself. Lots of time for introspection. You don't have, you know, access to loads of TV. Mm. You know, it's you, know, you just you know, don't have access to the internet very little and so you know phone calls once a day sort of thing so once you've you know taken all that away there's a lot of time just quiet introspection and I just found that that time away not being able to have my own coping mechanism of being myself and being forced to live this persona of being a man full time for that entire period and also having a lot of time to think about it it was just a bit it was a bit much you know and you know Afghanistan has got its challenges anyway right um so 
after all that I came home I said I'm just not going to put myself through that again and I wouldn't want to because that's you know that's where my career is heading it's going to be more of this so you know why would mm. I why would I volunteer for that so I thought enough's enough I'm, I'm going to do what I think is right and I'm going to come out and be myself. So after speaking to the medical officer what's what was the process? Um so I spoke to the medical officer and then I, I kind of paused on it for several months because I because I kind of lost my nerve a little bit um I spoke to Isla a, um, a yeah. few times and she kind of gave me a little bit more confidence and eventually I, I went to my commanding officer and I just kind of said I need a conversation and you know he said what is it and I said I it was kind of blurted out and said like I'm transgender and he was like uh okay um fine did you know I was gay and I was like okay um no no I didn't and he was really irritated by that because he himself had like has been had been open about his um you know being being gay but the, my fellow officers around me hadn't bothered to tell me because they were just a bit like, oh, why would you tell him? It's not important. Yeah. Um, but he but he was kind of frustrated because he thought, you know, maybe you could have told me earlier. But what he said was at that time, which is that I don't understand what it means to be transgender, but I will support you and I will help you and we'll get through this. And that's all I really need to know at that point. And we then kind of went on this journey together where I talked a lot about, you know, my my feelings and you know, why it was important to me and why I needed to do it. I'd done all the research on, you know, the arm, the policies that the army had had. And you know, I said, this is the process I'm going to go through. This is, you know, the points of contact. And I'd really kind of done my research. So I, I present, pretty much presented a plan and said, this is what is going to happen. Will you support me? And of course he did. Am I right in thinking, I think Jake told me this earlier, that it was not until 1999 that... Um, transitioning was accepted within the army <laughs> yeah so the first transgender policy in the army came in from 1999 um which was which, a year before you could be gay yeah so, yeah, so you know, homosexuality wasn't allowed in, wow. in in the army till 2000 so you know still living memory um which is quite crazy when you think about it um but the point i always make about that is that having the policy is one thing having the culture is another right and so there were so there were transgender people in the military before me you know who had come out underneath that policy but the culture was not accepting; it was not supportive, and so they'd had a really tough time. A lot, a lot of them had left early because the you know the bullying was was mm. was so bad. Whereas um, I I always find, think I was in the right place at the right time because I was an officer, um, so I kind of had a the ability to talk to senior officers anyway because I you know had that kind of military training as in in Sandhurst. Mm. Um, I was quite relaxed and open about my transition and I spent a lot of time doing kind of reverse mentoring and education and training and talking to to lots of senior officers openly and you know it started to build on the fact that actually I'm just you know another officer doing my job and actually doing it fairly well and so people started you know those perceptions started to change and I actually got um, outed in you know in public life by the sun so they found out that i was serving in the army as a transgender officer and they put me on their front page how did they find out i mean i don't really know i got a call from the army press office their kind of pr team um and just said you know this is happening what do you want to do you can ignore it and it'll happen and whatever happens we'll be here to support you um or if you want you can engage and you can give them your story and so, I mean, it wasn't really much of a choice. You know, I, I did what I thought was best. So I, I spoke to them and said, okay, here's some more. I need to get some photographs and, you know, gave an interview and all the rest of it. And they they wrote a clumsy story. It had lots of things about, you know, you know operations and you know, sex changes and all this other stuff, which, you know, it's quite ghastly to look at really. But their theme was, you know, you know, there's this good soldier whose transition is doing a good mm. job. And so, you know, from the Sun's perspective, that's actually not that bad. Um and perhaps it's the first time, I don't know, I'm assuming it was like a, a bit of a cultural shift for it now to be openly discussed within mainstream media. It was like just before, as you say, the tipping point, mm. perhaps. And she's, well, since then, you were also, she's been nominated for um, awards at the Sun Military Awards, which is obviously, you know, them sort of in a weird roundabout way showing their support for yeah. her. And they have been quite supportive of you since, haven't they? Yeah, no, and that's where I think, you know, right place at the right time. It just came at a moment where the media, maybe not willing to go too far but they were willing to just support a transgender soldier mm. who was who was doing well and you know after that happened my phone went off the hook and I you know from every media site going and you know I ended up doing um I decided to do just one tv appearance I did it on Lorraine mm. it was lovely Great choice yeah she's she was wonderful <laughs> and you know I started to tell my story my way authentically and I just got this really good you know positive feedback from both 
external from the army. So people saying, you know, just how amazing that the army's come this far and that you can be that. And younger trans people, you know, looking up and saying, I want to join the army and, I, mm. and, and I'm transgender, so I can join the army now. So that's really powerful. But also, you know, internally, I had lots of, you know, messages from random officers that I've worked with before or, or soldiers or even people I'd never met just saying, I've read your story. I think it's brave. I think it's amazing that you're in our army and I'm really proud for you. And I just, there just seemed to be this kind of culture change in this moment where maybe not, I don't think I was the culture change. I think that the culture was starting to change to be more open. And I became this like catalyst for everyone to talk about it and think about it. And before we knew it, like, it was this really positive thing that the army was doubling down on and I was being sent to kind of conferences to talk about being an open transgender officer. And so, yeah, everything just kind of grew from there. And someone said, oh, let's, you know, look at our policy, let's update it, let's mm. see how we can make it better. And I was in those conversations. So, yeah, I think I was just really privileged to be in the right place at the right time. But my career literally, you know, went from strength to strength when I came out. And otherwise I would have just had this kind of mediocre career um, no, which you know, not. I don't mean that's been disparaging to to anyone who you know doesn't you know isn't different in that kind of way. But for me personally, embracing the parts of me that was different yeah. meant I stood out in a good way, and you know my career went from strength to strength because of it. Hannah and Jake, perhaps you could deliver this. Uh, maybe not synchronized together, but I think this is another shared rule. Um, what is the rule that you would never break? Never forget how, how lucky you are. Or how cheesy that, that you can be. That was cheesy. I was yeah. going to say, that was good. Yeah. I think we should embrace it, actually. Absolutely. Um, perhaps within this, um, you could tell me about how you met, please. So I, well, I mean, again, this is why visibility for us has paid off, because I was, I'd just done The Danish Girl, which Hannah weirdly had seen at a private screening the week before, and um, i was you know it, it is you know with the gay community people will say oh you must you're gay you must know my cousin Bart in uh, Michigan he's gay too whereas that's my that, um, that's, Jewish uncle that's, <laughs> that's, 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 like, <laughs> so, so that's not true however for the trans community it pretty much is we do all know each other yeah. and I was aware of her and she popped up on my Facebook under the sort of people you may know and so I'd kind of casually press the button and then within an hour I got a very eager message from Hannah uh, saying hi Jake um, I have been following your exploits with much interest. Hannah's shaking and, her head. I mean, literally, so word for word. <laughs> I've been following your exploits with much interest. Uh, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, love to meet at some point soon. Um, love Hannah. And I thought, bloody hell, she's keen. And Wait, did you fancy him at this point? So, yeah, I mean, I like to give Jake his moment in, in the sun here, but let's just clarify that slightly. Um, <laughs> it wasn't like an hour. It was an hour and 10 minutes. Um, and so I got this answer from Hannah and I thought, well, that's very sweet. And it was Christmas time and we were all, she was at home in Cardiff with her parents and I was at home with my mum and uh, you know we started messaging so we, we basically had a build up where I kept saying to Hannah I want to talk to you on the phone and Hannah kept saying no we'll Skype and I was like who Skypes before they've even met what a weird thing to do mm. but because Hannah has a slightly deeper voice she was worried that if we spoke over the phone and I couldn't see her then I might think well she's got a sort of man's voice mm. or whatever but obviously I'd seen her in interviews and I loved her voice and I loved her face and you know I was sort of just keen to meet but I wasn't going to Skype. I hate Skyping. So we had our first phone conversation and uh, obviously within five minutes I kind of asked her very coolly if she was up for marriage and children. Um, <laughs> not necessarily with me, just generally yeah. because obviously I've always wanted kids and had Hannah said, no, I hate kids, that would have been that. But luckily she said, yeah, I I'd be open to that and uh, wasn't completely freaked out and didn't hang up, which was also a good sign. On the, on the f first phone call, did you explain why you wanted to be on Skype? I think I did, yeah. yeah. I, mean, yeah, yeah. I did. I, I think I think I'd explained by text. I think yep. beforehand, and yep. you said not to worry about it because I really didn't want a phone call beforehand mm. because, like, I'm you know my voice is a, um, I don't know. I kind of I have two simultaneously different feelings about it. So on one hand, I'm like, it would be nice if it was you know higher, more feminine, and you can train your voice to, to make it more higher and more feminine because then I could go through life maybe in a slightly more stealth way and not be outed all the time by it. But on the other hand, there's this part of me that goes, well, do you know what? You know, this voice has done me well. You know, when I'm, you know, I'm able to to give commands to large groups of people, mm -hmm. give presentations to large amounts of people and have my voice can carry and I can do it confidently and with passion. Um, and it's my voice. I'm a woman, therefore it's a woman's voice. So I kind of feel these very two different feelings about it and I kind of depending on the context is which one kind of overrides the other but mm. it's know. like that mix of how much does your kind of conditioning define you 
Um, so yeah, I can understand that that's a tricky, constant dialogue. Yeah, and but from a dating, I mean, I'd never, I'd never dated before I met Jake. You know, I was her first, so she had zero points of reference, which worked in my favour. Obviously, says <laughs> <laughs> so more about you than me, my love. Yeah, <laughs> I'm loving this. I'm not getting involved. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. But no, like I, you know, because even when I transitioned, you know, I when I transitioned, I had basically told myself, well. You're never gonna be, you know. You're never gonna have a, another relationship. Well, never gonna have another relationship. You're never gonna have a relationship because who would want to date a trans woman? Mm. And that's genuinely how I felt. And it's not hard to see why, because you know how to look at, say, the representations representations of trans women in the media. Like, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Yeah, have you ever seen yeah, Ace Ventura, Pet yeah, Detective? Yeah, Horrific. Yeah. And it was yeah. on it, it was on um, Channel f- five. S- five Star the other day. I mean, they should be ashamed. Yeah. And I actually did tweet and say, Five Star, why are you? Yeah. This is literally the most transphobic film you could possibly program a kids film was on at five in the afternoon on a, a bank holiday I think and this is the kind of film when when trans women are being murdered in their droves mm. pretty much on a sort of in the US at least on a weekly basis if not more so to put out a film like that where trans women is stripped and ridiculed mm. and the the whole point of it is how grotesque trans women are I think is is beyond irresponsible programming just saying no I you. think you're totally right did they respond they did not <laughs> <laughs> I'll be writing to them later good um, let's do it but yeah, so yeah like um, so I genuinely thought I was just going to be alone for the rest of my life and I kind of made my peace with it you know that was just that was just the deal I made myself like you know you'd be yourself but you know you're going to have to sacrifice um, you know being in love and so when you know several years later you know jake popped up on my facebook i thought you know this is a guy that's really attractive and actually this guy is a trans guy because i knew he was because he'd been in you know the danish girl and i'd seen him there i was just like well maybe dating a trans guy is not a bad idea because at least then he'll understand and maybe you won't kind of like want to go and throw up you know the moment he's you know he speaks to me so i kind of just like that's how that whole thing started we clicked we laughed. I found her quite funny. I still to this day find her quite funny. Mm. And uh, we, a couple of days later, on the 30th of December 2015, arranged to meet under the clock in Waterloo Station. I Was arra- it really under the clock? 100%. Yeah. That is yeah. sweet. Well, where else are you going to meet? By the Starbucks? I don't know. It just I mean, reminds me of two, my grandparents. So. <laughs> I think they met under the clock. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's where we did it. And um, we, I arranged to meet her at three o'clock in the afternoon because it was Christmas. And I thought, well, if by six in the afternoon it's all gone to pot, then I can get a mate to call and so I can go off and see my mates mm. so I did get the emergency call at 6pm there's been an emergency I was like no it's okay we're good here <laughs> yeah. and uh, and then we, we you know we were having our we, I took her up to the Royal Festival Hall and we overlooked Lovely. London and the river and because she'd not had a lot of experience of London mm. she I wasn't was, living in London right. at the time yeah so. she was quite enchanted by the whole thing and obviously we had lots of tequila and I think we had our, our first kiss at about 8 o'clock and then we, I took her for dinner and yo sushi because I'm a classy kind of guy <laughs> and uh, then we ended up weirdly you know obviously it comes to midnight in London and you're desperate for somewhere to go and this whole nonsense about it being a 24-hour city which we all know is not true yeah, it's rubbish. and Hannah went well there's a, an army bar around the corner I was like an army bar and so we walked up to this kind of fairly dull brick building uh, you know no, no sort of big signs out, outwardly walked in she flashed her card and this girl was like oh, good, good evening mom." and I thought wow she's super cool yeah. went to this very old kind of men's bar with a group of little 80 year old veterans playing cards on a table next to us <laughs> they poured us huge shots of tequila which was lovely and we sat and kissed on a sofa <sighs> and it was very romantic and then she called me on the way home told me she loved me down the phone did you? She- date one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of like, you know, just... It was you know, a like, slurry. Love you. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> just It was just like, a, you know, like a casual... Oh, yeah, lots of love, bye. Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. It was, love you, bye. Okay, but it was it was mutually felt. Oh, what, I, I, thought, I thought she was great. I mean, in all fairness, I had plans to meet my friends on the next day, which was 31st of December, New Year's Eve, and I sacked them off at 10 o'clock to come and meet her with the first ever bunch of flowers she had received. Oh, that's lovely. It was very romantic. Very and then romantic. when did you get married? Last the next year. day. <laughs> <laughs> no, last year, 23rd of March, 2018, yep. at Chelsea um, Town oh. Hall, which is where my mother married, um, which is where my best friend married. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was pretty much a dream wedding, wasn't it? Um, so when you uh, talk about the rule that you'd never break, never forget how lucky you are, I'm obviously assuming... Some of that kind of is to do with you as a couple. Um, but is it also to do with how your transitions, both of them, have been met? 
I mean, in my case, it's everything from how my mother reacted the first time I told her, how my friends have been supportive, how, you know, I've been very lucky in that I've used all of my experiences to write films which have been very well received. Mm. No one had written the kind of films that I was writing about trans guys at the time that I was writing them, that I started. And even now, there's, there's still a massive shortage. Um, so I'm I'm grateful for the platform we've got, for the voice we've got. I'm grateful every time a young person messages us to say, you know, you've changed my life and you've given me hope and you, or you've saved my life. Or an older person messages and says, you know, an older trans person, I never thought I'd find love and you've given me hope that I might one day find that. Mm. And just the, the sheer volume of support we have had you know we were standing on the stage at pride in london the other day and there were kids in the front row kind of crying and waving up and you know you realize that you have could be or have been the person that you didn't have when you were growing up and to us that is just an amazing honor an amazing amazing privilege mm. to be you know i would have killed to have a trans guy to look up to to know that i wasn't a freak that there was nothing wrong with me i was just different and hopefully we are those people and to be in that position is something to be incredibly grateful for. I think it's amazing. Yeah, I think um, for me, break, in the keeping that rule is is just about just taking time in your life just to take stock of what you have got and maybe focus on that more than what you haven't got because, you know, Jake and I, you know, through our work with, you know, various charities, transgender charities or LGBT charities and you just see so many people who are trans like us who just haven't had the positive experience that we've had. You know, we've both had individually positive stories and a positive story together, but there are lots of people who don't have that. Mm. And, you know, there are times even now where Jake and I can feel hard done by or thinking, you know, why is it this so difficult for us? You know, normal people don't have to go through this. Those kind of thoughts eke into your brain all the time. And that's fine. You should, you know, everyone should feel those feelings. You know, when something doesn't go your way, it's really natural just to, to have a sense of, you know, why me? This isn't fair. But I think you just have to counter that afterwards when you're taking a deep breath and go, well, actually, just look at where I am compared to where lots of other people like me are. And wow, are we lucky? Mm. And just try to remember that, I think. And obviously, um, recognising that privilege is really incredible. But I just wonder if there's a flip side to that, which is, is there ever a point where you're like, I don't want this to be my responsibility anymore. I don't want to do more interviews. That no, I mean, people say this to us a lot. Certainly, there are times when Hannah and I look at our weekend and think, oh God, and we've got to shoot with these trans kids and then we've got an interview and then we've got a panel and then we've got a this and a that. And pretty much, you know, Hannah works every day, I'm writing at home every day and then we've got events mm. or things like this most evenings. Not like this. But, but no, this is, this is the highlight <laughs> of my year thus far. <laughs> but um, genuinely, we... I, I think I, I feel lucky the whole time. I think, you know, it's great to be busy. I've, I'd always wanted to be busy. I spent the first kind of 25 years of my life just feeling lost and like I would never achieve anything and never be proud, not only of myself, but, you know, of, of myself as, as our community, that my mum would never be proud of me. And we are so lucky to be in this position. And I see it genuinely, you know, without sort of sounding like a little martyr, genuinely, I, sound, I feel like it's a huge privilege, a huge honour to have this, to have this voice, to be able to help these kids, to be patrons of the Mermaids mm. charity, which helps trans kids and their families, to be a patron of the Albert Kennedy Trust, which helps homeless LGBT youth, to work with all these people, to give hope to these kids, to give hope to their parents. How can that possibly be a burden? How can that possibly be a negative? Mm. That's how I feel anyway. I am grateful to you two for sitting with me uh, this evening. Thank you so much. You are wonderful black sheep and total couple girls, really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.